Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. There we go. So Numbers chapter 20 is where we'll pick up and we will get through the chapter today, God willing. Chapter 20 starts a brand new narrative in the story, which is why I was so excited to get in all three chapters last week because it was not enough to fill kind of two weeks teaching. Um, but we're going to start kind of the final segment of the book of Numbers and this kind of final journey of what's going to happen in this book. Um, but the journey takes a few chapters. Um, and we'll start off verse 1. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin, which means flat. In the first month, the people, the people stayed in Kadesh, which means holy, and Miriam died there and, and was buried there. So this is the same territory, just to get a context of where they're at, because sometimes I lose track of the locations. Abraham grazed his sheep in this same wilderness of Zin, this flat sheep grazing area, and back in Genesis 20. This is the exact same spot back in Numbers 13, which wasn't so long ago for us, where they sent the spies into the Holy Land, and the spies came back saying, there's giants, we can't do this, it's too scary. And then they all ran off. Um, so this is the, the other piece that's in here is the first month. It doesn't tell us what year this is. And that's interesting because so far in the Bible, we've always been, they've tried to lock us down to a year. And this is one of the first instances where they don't do that. It just says the first month, like that has significance. We know from Numbers 33 that it's actually the 40th year since they left Egypt. So it's been exactly 40 years at this point. But in this passage, they don't tell us that at all. I think that's in part because in the last eight chapters, we've seen these images of Christ over and over and over again, and these connections back to the New Testament, like God's trying to tell a story for the Israeli people, right? In Leviticus, he said, here's how you worship me. In Numbers, he says, here's how you live for me. And here's these kinds of pieces where, and most of that as humans is Israel dealing with their complaining hearts, that we always complain as humans. And it's just this kind of complaining and that kind of complaining and this kind of presumption and that kind of um, contesting God all the time as to who's in charge and who's the boss. And I think we have in Numbers 20 another piece of that. So the year doesn't matter as much as the images we're going to get out of this chapter. And I love these chapters. I think they're really fun. So they've returned after many years. They're back at the same spot where they had failed before. And Numbers then apparently has just skipped 38 years. Like that time in the wilderness just didn't matter. And we were just talking at dinner about that. I think that's something that as old people you regret. Dang, I wasted 20 years just being lost in the wilderness, doing nothing for my king. And that was just gone time. So the whole congregation in verse 1, uh, it implies that we're going to see a, a few different plates where they talk about it coming back together. That implies that for 38 years, the different tribes kind of went their own ways, which hasn't that always been the problem is people just go in their own way. But they've been they're reassembling like something's happening. And that had to be kind of exciting. Like they look around and there comes Naphtali and here comes Issachar. And these tribes come from all over this wilderness area. 
and they gather at the border again, just like their parents did 38 years ago. So you can kind of feel the, 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 the movie buildup. And then you get to this interesting kind of sad line about Miriam. This is the last she's mentioned. Last time we saw Miriam, she was, she was challenging Moses' authority, like she should be in charge too. And God gave her leprosy. You remember the story. And then God healed the leprosy. So she's been a major figure. She's one of the top people. It's significant that she died, and they, the entire nation of Israel would have known that she died. This is like when a famous person dies, and it goes out on the news today, and everybody knows that Prince died on this day or whatever. Lots of people can die in a given day, but when Miriam dies, it's a big deal, and it gets noted. That's because in Exodus 2, she was the person that put Moses in the water. She was the big sister in all likelihood that saved him. In Exodus 15, she was the worship leader for Israel. She was a she led them all in song, and she would have been that kind of glowing personality. And then in Numbers 12, of course, we have that sad last chapter where she, she kind of becomes irrelevant for 38 years um, after that. So she died. The, the, the story of Miriam is over without much ceremony or story or anything, and she's just dead. And at the end of this chapter, Aaron's going to die. So you, in Numbers 12, you had both Aaron and Miriam have two different pathways when it comes to repentance. And then in this chapter, you have that starting and ending with the two of them dying. As though the two of the three kind of major leaders of Israel, Moses being the third, are all going to fail. And in the middle of this chapter, sandwiched in between the two death narratives, is this story of Moses just failing again. And we so it's kind of a sad downer chapter, but the way this stuff connects into the New Testament gives us a lot of hope because we know the rest of the story. Verse 2. That was a lot of context. Okay, verse 2. There was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together. There's another indication that they're gathering against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us up? Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this place of evil? It is, is it, it is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Once again, we know how much the Israelites loved pomegranates because they seem to list them on a regular basis. So this is like a reminder of the last nine chapters where the people of Israel have complained about various things. Here we are again. So for God's people, especially ones that have been astray, there's a thirst that goes with that. They, don't, they lack water. That's the truth of the situation. And not having water to drink is a horrible thing. So the problem is a real problem. Thirst, therefore, is the absence of water. And I think this is an interesting point because I'll come back to it later. Water is something that we can measure. We can put it in a cup. It's life-sustaining. We can hold our, we can stake our promises in that. We know it's there. We can trade it and exchange it. We can cool it. We can heat it. We can do things with water. You can do nothing with thirst. And this is kind of the nature of the people of God. There's all these things that we can measure and know, and then there's the absence of those things. For instance, dry is a lot like darkness or cold or even evil. It's simply the absence of something measurable and good. And that's kind of what it comes to. We can go through a lot of years of our life and be dry, and it's just the absence of a flowing living water coming through us. It's an absence of love. Right, and, and I think that's such an interesting kind of thing is that the people of God are recognizing something real. They're thirsty and they need something. 
they need something measurable and real in their life, and all they know is they don't have it. So they complain and they contend against Moses. So I think this is one of those kinds of things. And again, a, a lot of times dinner conversations go right into this, so they're fresh in my head. A lot of times when we live our life and we're dry, we don't have blessings in our life. And you can count and measure the blessings in your life. It's what God tells us to do. Remember and count our blessings. Tell them to one another and share our blessings with each other. Here's what God's doing in our life. And we can say that's an amazing thing. And we can look at it and we can trade those stories and we can exchange them. But when you don't have those stories, it just feels dry and empty because God's not necessarily moving. So the correct thing to do when things are dry is you cry out to the rock. And that's what Moses is going to do. And it's pretty neat. So they've gathered together against. So once again, they're gossiping, they're banding, they're contending. If only we had died when our brother the guy, once again, they're exaggerating and putting ill will in, in, in Moses's mind and pretending they can read his mind and what, what he's intending for them. So they blame Moses. Why have you done this, Moses, instead of knowing that God has maybe not given them the, the water that they, they want? Uh, so they're not turning to the Lord. They're still turning to Moses. And they should have taken this issue to the Lord. And I wonder what go, is going through Moses's head here, because he's getting to be an old geezer now. He's up in his hundreds. And I've heard when you get into your hundreds, things, you know, don't work like they used to. And it's, you get creaky knees and all that sort of thing. So Moses is old and there's got to be something going through his head. Like they're going to do it again. They're, these idiot Israelites are going to do the same thing they did 30 years ago, 38 years ago. And Moses is once again going to keep them out of the promised land. So they think the solution to their thirst is to complain. And the solution to their thirst is not that. So in verse six, all of that for the word so, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So Moses and Aaron model what the people should have done. They should have gone to the tabernacle of meeting and fell on their faces before the Lord. That's how you get blessings. That's how you get living water in your life. This made me think a little bit. I think Moses and Aaron are different here because their, their love is in the Lord and their fear is in the Lord. And love and fear go together. We love the things we worship and we worship the things we love. If we're going to lose those things, we then fear those things. And Moses and Aaron have a fear of the Lord in the light of what's going on here. And we, and we always fear the things we, we fear losing the things we love. For example, when you're a kid, you fear losing your toys because you love your toys. And if your parents are going to take your toys away and put them on a high, high shelf, that's a terrifying moment for a little child. As we grow into adults, we, our love and our worship changes from toys and inanimate objects. Hopefully it matures into loving our life, loving health, loving money, loving power, loving our friendships, loving our families, loving Super Bowl victories, all these things. And all of those things are things we can put our love into. And when we do that, we're always at risk of moving from a like to a worship, right? And, 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 and where do we put those things in scale? What we should have our faith in is the Lord. And what we should always fear is losing our relationship with an almighty God. That's the thing we should be terrified of. And to keep our relationship with the Lord, we turn to him in faith. So they agree with the need, Moses and Aaron and the people. They just do things differently. They go straight to God because that's what they are doing. So they model for Joshua and the next generation how this all works. And God immediately answers them. They fall on their faces, which is an indication of prayer, supplication, putting themselves below God. Um, and, they, and they do that in order to get an answer from God. So as a nation... God's will here is to order the prayers 
of the people, and he does that in such a way that Moses and Aaron are going to act that out. Verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before the, uh, their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Small paragraph, amazing kind of message. Taking the rod has to do with authority. God tells them to bring the rod. He never tells them to use the rod. That's interesting, because usually when you have authority, you wield it and you use it. But in this case, God's going to give Moses this authority or the symbol of authority through the rod, but he's asking them to speak to the rock. And if you remember last time, he told them to strike the rock. But the rock should be struck once, and after that, just speaking to it is sufficient. And that's the image God's asking for in these verses. So if we sequence the last three chapters, in verse 17, God identified his high priest and made it so everybody could see the high priest with the rod of Aaron. Remember that? And then in chapter 18, God identifies disciples that are going to do the work for that priesthood. And then in chapter 19, God demands a perfect red cow to be sacrificed for the nation that would provide salvation for all the folks and all they got to do is wash in the water and they're saved. This should have been the next piece of that. And when you need anything, all you have to do is speak to the rock and he'll answer your prayers. And that would have been such a nice sequence, but Moses screws it all up. Um, really this story should be about the Messiah and about Jesus and it should go with those past chapters and it should go really nice. John 5 verse 45 says, Don't think I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus himself associated the teachings that we're reading from Moses as being about Jesus. So when I take these chapters and say they're really about Jesus. I'm just taking what Jesus said about these chapters. This is what Moses wrote. These are stories about him. And we should be able to see those things so that we can believe Jesus when he says that. Chapter 20 then, God's going to provide living water for the people who need it. People who are thirsty, he's going to give them water. And the only thing that should have happened is that they should have been able to speak to the rock and they get water. Kind of cool image. So in Exodus 17, if you're taking notes, that's the chapter where last time we were striking rocks. So the rock gets struck one time in that chapter. It's an image how Moses' law could bless the Jews. And there's an image of Messiah. He's struck in that. And then the second one uh, is the image of water, but being delivered very differently. So here we have an image of a rock that pours forth living water, and it meets the needs of all of God's people. That's incredible. That's a miracle. Rocks, as we know, do not produce water. So that said, if you really want to get into the archaeology, there is a site that people believe is this rock that we're talking about. And if you look at photos of it, it's kind of a split rock, and there's signs of a massive kind of pool or even lake of water that would have filled at some point, and there's nearby springs and aquifers that they believe popped out. That's the non-miraculous version. There is a site that it wouldn't be very miraculous. However, if the water comes out within the moment of when they asked for it, that alone is a miracle. Or when Moses struck the rock, that the timing of water, right when it gets hit by a stick, that's an actually, the Bible's claiming a miraculous thing happened here. Even if you have identified the site and found water erosion and everything else, which is kind of exciting and you should look it up if you want to. So we have this image of a rock that pours forth living water. It's a miracle no matter how you kind of frame it. 
Um, and this is how early believers framed this story. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, there's commentary on this. And did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So the New Testament believers completely use this story in connection to Jesus. Christ is going to get struck, and then he's going to pour forth living water. God tells Moses to strike it the first time, not the second time. So the simple request of Moses is going to bless the people, not the law and the authority. So Moses has the authority of the law, but he's not supposed to use it. Christ is the same way. The law of Moses is fulfilled in Christ, but he doesn't use it to give his grace and mercy. He chooses not to judge. And if we ask of Christ the living water, he chooses to not apply all of these very legit laws about how we should live. He excuses those because in our heart we seek to serve the Lord. That's so beautiful. And what a gift that is. So here's another one. Uh, John 7, verse 37. In the last day, the great, the great day of the feast, that got my attention. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus himself uses this image that he is the, the rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It's a beautiful image of prayer and how easy it is to come to Christ and just say, Lord, I don't know anything about the law. I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes, but I want you and I'm thirsty. And that's all I know. And that's all you need to know. And then you have this kind of simple Christian tradition of I was lost and now I'm found. I was thirsty. Now I'm not. And that's the evangelistic tool of Christians. Every other religion you have to explain. But in this kind of thing, if it's real, if it's measurable, then you just tell people about what's measurable. Here's what God's doing in my life. And that's an exciting place to be because you can bless people with that. You can give hope. So Moses screws it up. <laughs> Worse, he acts in sin. He takes on the same presumption, and I think that there's a balance to this. He presumes to be more than he's supposed to be. Shadow, no. You don't get to sit on the couch. It's okay. You just need to lay down. He sees the empty spot. Okay, I'm sorry. I got distracted. Verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. So this is a good start. And then in verse 10, we have the problem. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock. Okay, this is a horrible finish. This is not what Moses is supposed to do. So there's a few. First of all, I think Moses has become a grumpy old man. And he's just irritated with these folks. And he's acting in the same kind of presumption, anger, and impatience that he did when he was back when he was a young man and he killed the Egyptian soldier. He's regressed back to his original state. So Moses can't really claim that he's better than anybody because he does this. God didn't ask Moses to say anything, yet Moses says something. He didn't ask Moses to be harsh. He asked them to model and show for them living water. So the thirst issue is real. It's okay to go to God when we're thirsty. Moses shouldn't have been irritated here. When people are thirsty, it's okay to say, I'm thirsty. Can we get some water? I'm hot. Can we get some air conditioning? Necessary even. So Moses has aged a bit in his bitterness. Um, he probably has spent 38 years just irritated because he could have been in a land of milk and honey and he's out with his sheep for another 38 years. And there's probably a part of him that says there should have been more to this life than what God's given me. And he's had to take this journey. And now these people are making the same mistake again. I just want to get in that place where we understand Moses because we're not above Moses, right? And that irritation. So no one, not even Moses, is immune to sin. There's a presumption that Moses is taking here. 
Uh, the last piece is he uses the phrase, must we bring water from the rock? Look at what Moses is doing there. Really, Moses and God are equals now? Like he's presuming he's at that level? Nobody's righteous, not one. All have fallen sh short and sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 11, then Moses lifted his hand, and here we go, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly in the congregation, and their animals drank. So God asked him to speak, and Moses strikes it. What's, I think it's fascinating here. God still provides the water for the people. Like he's going to bless his people no matter if Moses screws up an image of Christ or not. And I think it's important to know from God's perspective, he's got to deal with Moses at this point because Moses clearly overstepped. But he knows the people and the animals are thirsty too, and he's going to provide for their needs despite what a bad teacher they had. So Moses is angry. Water comes out. God gives this invitation, and he goes forward with his plans regardless of Moses. Verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So this is the same as chapter 14. Uh, this is just because this is what he did with the people back in chapter 14. Now he's going to have the exact same consequence for Aaron and Moses. Because you've presumed you're not going to get to see the fruits of this walk with me. You did not believe me. The sin here is greater than just Moses being irritated. In speaking and striking the rock, he didn't believe what God told him to do would, would work effectively. And the second piece is to hallow him in verse 12. He doesn't hallow him. And to hallow is to separate ourselves from God, to understand God is more than we are. We don't get to determine who God is and what God says. We get to listen to those things. Matthew says, we know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even Moses is subject to God's law. It's not Moses' law. And oftentimes when people talk about the Old Testament, they'll refer to Moses' law. And I think that's a misreading of the Old Testament. It's never been Moses' law. Moses is plagiarizing God. And there's been times where he recognizes that and he hollows God as separate. And then and there's times when he doesn't. So even Moses is subject to this law. He's a flawed but faithful human, just like we are. To hollow is the word kadash. We've seen that a few times. It's to consecrate and to set apart, a theme we've seen throughout Leviticus and throughout Numbers. Part of a walk of faith is to consecrate certain things for God. And God himself is always consecrated and separated. So Moses didn't set God apart. He presumed and he misses the mark. And that's kind of sad because I hope as you, as me, you've fallen in love with this guy named Moses. His character, his personality, the authenticity of a real human being in the works of a 2,000-year-old piece of writing, that's kind of touching and intimate. I don't feel this way when I read other ancient works, but I do with Moses. I see a human I can relate to, uh, and he makes mistakes. So he doesn't get to go to the Holy Land. Verse 13, this was the water of Meribah. Meribah means strife or contention, uh, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hollowed among them. Interestingly enough, Moses in verse 12 doesn't hollow the Lord, but in verse 13, the Lord is hollowed anyways, regardless of what Moses does. Interesting. It doesn't matter to God what we do. God will be glorified. And he'll be glorified either in just consequences for sin, or he'll be glorified in amazing mercy and blessing in the act of forgiveness. Either way, God's hallowed and made sacred and made holy. And at the end of days, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Some will have happy knees and some will have not so happy knees. 
but everyone will know who God is in the end. Verse 14, now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother, Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwell in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. And when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voices and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through the fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from the wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or the left hand until we've passed through your territory. So this begins the fifth and final stage of their journey in the wilderness. And they try to stay under the radar. So of the five stages, the first stage is getting out of Egypt. Second stage is hanging out at Sinai. Third stage is their failed attempt at Kadesh where they run away because they're too scared of the giant people in the land. Then we have the fourth phase, which is kind of uncovered between the last chapter and this one, which is wandering in the desert for 38 years. And then five, Moses is doing something here. And I still think part of the narrative is Moses is a failed human being. Despite all of the wonderful things he's done, he still failed. Because notice in verse 14, God does not tell Moses to do this. So Moses is still making kind of mistakes here. Second, the, what he's trying to do is get along with the people of the world in order to not cause any strife with other people. And I do this all the time. I don't know about you, but my default is to get along with people. And Moses is trying to make a deal with the world to make entry into the promised land an easy passage. And, he, and again, God's going to be glorified because we get this image of how people do this. He uses your brother. And the reason he's saying that is because the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So if you look in Genesis 25, you can see that connection. So we're back to this old Genesis 25, Jacob versus Esau. The people of God versus the people of the world. And we're in that exact same situation. And Moses is going to these people saying, we're brothers, we're close. Jacob and Esau, we're tight. And he's trying to make this deal where we can just go through your land in peace. We won't bother you. You don't bother us. We'll just get along and everybody will be happy. But it doesn't work that way. Then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with a sword. Nope, you don't get to be in my land. I'm not going to let you have peace. And so Moses asked for nothing and Edom still says no. And that's kind of an interesting phenomena. When we go into the world to try to heal our problems, it usually comes up short. So the hope might be there, oh, we can just easily walk into the Holy Land, no conflict, nothing like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't really work. It usually makes it worse because in trusting Edom, Moses isn't trusting the Lord to clear things out. Hosea 6.5 when Ephraim saw sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the king Jerob, yet he cannot hear you, you know, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. Going to the world doesn't heal us and doesn't cure our wounds. And it doesn't fix things. Um, and it's, it, the answer is always to turn to God. So in, here, here he tries again in verse 19. So the children of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. I think the Edomites thought, you're going to travel through our whole land and never drink our water. And they figured Moses might be lying because that's impossible. But Moses knows where he's getting his water from because of the past few verses. So he's kind of saying once again, look, if we go through area, we won't touch your stuff. We'll leave everything that you want alone. We just want to live in peace. 
we just want to hold our meetings and study the Bible and sing songs. That's literally all we want to do. And the world says, no, nah, we're not going to let you do that. And we're going to stop that from happening. The second request comes with assurances from Moses, but even the assurances don't work. Verse 20, then he said, you shall not pass through. Very close to a Lord of the Rings line, but I won't make the Lord of the Rings <laughs> reference. So Edom came out against them with many men with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Interesting here how in, in verse 21, it says Edom, the nation, and then uses a first person pronoun in his territory. Do you see that? It's a really interesting phrasing. God still sees Edom as the person. It's an interesting thing. And the personality of this nation is still reflected in their founder. Thus, Edom refused to give passage to Israel through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Two viable ways to understand this passage. Actually, maybe even three. And this is a really interesting passage. Way one to understand this passage. God wasn't asked at the beginning and God's not involving himself at the end. Have you noticed God's not part of the story right now? Moses trying to make a deal with the world, God's not in that at all. And the result is going to be godless. Therefore, sometimes the world just refuses believers. No reason, just suspicion. And that's one way to understand this passage as how that can apply to our lives. Sometimes we need to just understand that God's not in the world and he's not part of that equation and God's staying out of it for the same reason, right? You want to make deals with the world, you're on your own with that. Right? Um, it made me think of the pastor in Italy where he had to go to the city government because they wouldn't let him bury people from his church in the Catholic graveyards in, in Italy. And how nonsensical is that? But they weren't Catholics, so they can't be buried in this soil next to a Catholic person. So the entire city government was making it so they couldn't bury people. So he had to go, go down and say, you are treating us like dogs. <laughs> which being an English speaker, trying to talk to Italians, he used like what would strike them. And then they gave him a separate area to bury his people in, in this area. The world doesn't necessarily care about even giving people a place to bury their dead. And it's amazing how cold and heartless the world can be sometimes. And he's like, all we want to do is sing our songs. And when people die, we want to have ground to bury them in. That's all we're asking for. And the world can't even give that. And it's one of those things where sometimes that, that jealousy, that fear, that hatred becomes so mean and cruel that it becomes just downright petty. Like, would it have hurt Edom to say, yeah, you can travel through? They could even set up little vendor shops and had lemonade on the side of the road and probably made some money off two million people walking through their country. But no, they don't want any part of that. Um, to, in, in Edom's defense... Two million people walking through your country looks like an army. Remember when they learned how to march and how to camp and how to set up and take down efficiently? These people look like an army marching on your border. So let's give Edom a little bit of like, would we want all those Canadians marching through Minnesota? Actually, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Um, <laughs> but I can understand at some level where a nation would say, nah, no thanks. You can keep your two million people out of our country. So a second way to understand this is that Edom is the first challenge of the Israelites. They're the first encounter that the Israelites are going to have where they're going to have a challenge as they move into the promised land. And this is the beginning of a narrative. And I don't know if that's a bad way to interpret this passage, but it's one way to understand it. But then that changes how you read the coming chapters, right? Because if this is episode one, then we need to understand that this Esau as an enemy of Jacob idea is the closest thing that you got to struggle with as you enter into the kingdom of God. 
first you have to deal with your cousins and your family, right? And your cousins and your family may not be believers. And, and that's something that you have to struggle with because when you decide to give your life to the Lord, your cousins, your brother, Edom, may not be okay with that. And you might have some conflict where you used to have peace. And really that conflict is a jealousy kind of thing. It always has been with Esau and Edom. It's always been about the jealousy. It's always been about the fact that Jacob got the blessing and, and, and Esau sold it for some red, red soup. So that's the second way to understand this. Sometimes to get into the kingdom, you have to give up your life to get that promised land. Third way to understand this, and I think, and I kind of hinted to this before, is Edom is doing nothing wrong in this situation. Edom's actually in the right. And that's a third, I think, valid way to understand this passage and a way that you can kind of apply that to your life. So Israel is looking for the world to make things easy for themselves. And that's not what God, God has not told them to do that. So God is using Edom as a way to put up a barrier in their life that they didn't need to have. That's an interesting take on this chapter too. Israel's trying to take the easy path into the kingdom and there's no easy path. You do it God's way and you follow the cloud or you don't. You're presuming too much. Deuteronomy 2, God gave this land to Esau and Israel's not allowed to attack. In fact, God says to them in Deuteronomy in this moment, do not meddle with them, being Edom, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. How amazing that God is blessing other nations, not just Israel. And he made a promise to Esau that that was his land, and he's holding Israel to that promise. God sets the boundaries of the nations, right? So Edom's not actually doing anything wrong here. In not one footstep, Edom's actually in the right, and Moses is in the wrong, which fits with the passage too. There's testimony of how God will keep his promise across centuries. And I think that's beautiful. I want to serve a God that remembers things across the centuries. Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother, and you shall not abhor an Egyptian, because they, you were a stranger in their land. There's two nations that God singles out as having a kind of blessing outside of Israel. The Edomites and the Egyptians, because they have served God's purpose and their thing. So God actually honors these uh, Edomites in Deuteronomy, and we have to go to Deuteronomy to see that, but that's a third take on this passage, is Edom's actually being protected by God, and they're doing what God told them to do here. Verse 22. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh uh, and came to Mount Hor. Uh, this is the location, it's kind of a time-like marker, because in Numbers 33, this is where they say it, in 40 years they came to Mount Hor. So this is kind of like a marker sentence where we can set up a timeline if we want to. They've all gathered together, the whole congregation. This is the third time we've seen that indication that there was a gathering. Mount Hor is in southern Jordan. So in verse 22, that implies that, the, that Israel has moved from the west to the east side of Edom. Does that make sense? So when we say we go from Kadesh to Mount Hor, it means they're going around Edom and they're circumventing that country. So... Judges 11 tells this story too, and they talk about how they bypassed both Edom and Moab, and they went past Arnon, and they are actually traveling around different things, and this might be northeast of the Dead Sea, so actually quite a huge journey. I wouldn't want to take that journey by foot. That's across horrible geography. Like, it's not a pleasant place. So largely, these are issues of timing. In context, the record here is of a fresh start. 
Miriam has died. We're going to see Aaron die next. And we have this failing of Moses right and sandwiched in between them. All three of the major leaders of Israel in this chapter are kind of going down. And the Israelites are enduring hardship and a long journey in the middle. And that is kind of the struggle. So there's lots of movement for the people of Israel, but no progress. And I, for me at least, I have felt that way with decades of my life. Lots of movement with no progress. And that's a sad place to be. And, I, and I'm convicted by the thought of, if there's ever been a day in your life when you felt closer to God than today, then by definition you have backslidden. And sometimes I, day, I wake up and I think, have I ever felt closer to God than I do today? And sometimes I have to admit, yeah. So what's happened? And what's gone on? And what's happened here is that instead of just speaking to the rock, they started striking the rock, which is essentially what the people of Israel did. They're accusing Moses. They're complaining about what's going on. And they're losing all this time. Years in the desert and now another more months of just walking around. Lots of activity, lots of motion, lots of good things, but nothing that's a God thing. And in that, they lose everything. And that's such a tragic place to be. We can exist in life and not really live our life. We can breathe and have a biological life, but never have a life that's abundant with the Spirit of God and the joy of family and friends worshiping and serving the Lord together. What can be better than that? Probably living and serving the Lord together with air conditioning. (laughs) But other than that, verse 23, we get to this last place at Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. Aaron's going to die. For he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. So, interestingly, it's not the golden calf incident that gets Aaron kicked out of the land. It's that he was complicit with Moses in striking this rock. That's what gets him kicked out of the land. Like, if you're Aaron, wouldn't you say, well, Lord... Really, this is the thing that you're going to do when I did the whole worship of golden calf thing back early in my life, but you forgave me of that. I actually rebelled against Moses with Miram and you forgave me of that. But this striking of the rock thing, that's what's going to be what ends it. And, and I think what we're seeing is just an end to this chapter of the Bible, this era. And Moses, uh, Miriam represents the prophets because she was a prophetess. Aaron's representing the priesthood. And if you include Moses representing the law, they're all going to fail. The prophets failed, the law failed, and now the priesthood is going to fail too. And all three of those things are going to come up short when it comes to getting into the Holy Land. A lesson we should take into our own lives. It's not the prophecy that's going to save us. It's not the law that's going to save us. In fact, the law accuses us. And it's not the holy priesthood that's going to save us. And no ordination makes you a better person, ever. The only thing you have is the water of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that saves you. Everything else just comes up short. And anyone who's lived in a religious system where there's lots of laws and rules can tell you exactly how that feels. It's a prison. And he just falls up short. And it's not a true religion because it's made up by a series of rules that humans have come up with. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. It says, Because you've rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah, contention and strife. Moses is held accountable here too, notice that, but Aaron's the one that's going to die. So we got to find out what happens to Moses as we keep going. Verse 25, take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. This is important because as Aaron's going to die, the priesthood is going to stay around. And verse 26, 
Strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as he, the Lord commanded. So he's learning. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. That's important, that this is all being seen by the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Boom. Doesn't say how he died. It was maybe a heart attack. Maybe the Lord just ended him just right like that. How cool would it be to know you're going to die and be able to say all your goodbyes and then quick and painless? What a blessing. And I, I know you don't like to think of death as a blessing, but if there's a way to die, Aaron called it. Like, this is it. You know, here you go, son. You can have my robes. You pass on the mantle. And then God just ends it right there and, and, and it's over. So Aaron dies with great honor on top of the world. He's on a mountaintop, right? He's highly regarded. He's honored as a priest, so he's wearing all his garments. They've all been put on him. He gets to go up with his brother, his son, and uh, there's an intercessor here. And all of his sins that we know of because we've read the book aren't even mentioned at the end of his life. None of it's mentioned. And what a beautiful place to die and a good place to be when you die. In other words, it's not necessarily Aaron's sin that causes him to die. It's Aaron's sin that means you're not going to enjoy the Holy Land in this lifetime. But Aaron gets honored and elevated by God in front of all the people. So the garments here are essential. There's this smooth transition of the priesthood. The priesthood lives on even though Aaron doesn't. So the garments get put on Eleazar prior to any death happening. So the garments never experience death and they don't touch death. The priesthood moves to Eleazar, the living son, before any kind of death happens. And that's really important because from Leviticus we saw how key it was that the things of God don't touch death, ever. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, and all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron for 30 days, the whole nation has fallen in love with this guy over 38 years. When you're walking through the wilderness, that high priest, that person that kind of leads you to the Lord and leads you to the kingdom, uh, that's the person you, you tend to have an affinity with those people really quick. And it's a real blessing, I think, that Aaron is honored by the whole congregation. Contrast this with Miriam. She's not honored in the same kind of way. In fact, they're kind of irritated with her because they all had to wait for seven days while she um, was dealing with leprosy. But with Aaron, they mourn him and we say goodbye to a major character in the Bible, a major hero of the Bible. Eleazar gets presented in full transition. Everyone sees it. There's nothing hidden with the kingdom of God. And the person God is anointing with those garments, it is public. Everybody knows it. It's out in front. And then we pick up where we left off. Like that old generation has passed away. The only person left is Moses. But here we are at the door to the Holy Land once again with the people of God. The goal, remember, of all of Numbers has been to get into the Holy Land. And everything we see in Numbers is about this why don't they get into the Holy Land? What, how do they live their life in such a way? So they want to be sustained by the living water that is God's blessing. But what are they being sustained for if it's not to get into the Holy Land? And I think that's kind of a legitimate complaint from the people. Why didn't we just die 38 years ago? If we're not going to get in, then how come you didn't just kill us then? And we could just go all off and do a Jonesboro thing and, and we could just be done. And that's a logical thing to say. Like, if we're not going towards the Holy Land, what in the world are we doing with our lives? And why are we wasting our days if we're not heading in that direction? 
So that's kind of this kind of passage from the entire thing of, of Numbers, the whole book of Numbers. The goal is the Holy Land. Let's not lose sight of that, even though they keep missing it, right? Miriam dies. The words and the songs don't lead them there. The world doesn't give them passage into the Holy Land. Aaron, the high priest, fails to get them into the Holy Land. And Moses, the writer of the law, is going to go last. He doesn't get them into the Holy Land either. So now we have these four kind of frames for things that don't get us there, right? There's no prophet. There's no priest. There's no law. There's certainly not anything in the world that's going to get us into the kingdom. Who is left? What is possibly left that could get us into the kingdom? Otherwise, there's no hope. And the answer to that is coming in a few chapters. There's this young person whose name is Yeshua or Joshua in the Old Testament. In the Greek, that's pronounced Jesus, right? The only thing left that's going to get him into the Holy Land is Yeshua. That's all. That's such a cool image. And God didn't have to name Joshua Joshua, but he did because we're not that smart. And he wanted to make it really easy to see what's going on here, right? The world won't get you there. No laws and rules are going to get you there. No prophet and sacred secret language of the Gnostics is going to get you there. The world is really not going to get you there. They're just going to fight you. But you got Yeshua. And Yeshua is going to lead that way and fight those battles. Only Yeshua remains to lead him into the Holy Land. So if you're thirsty and you want direction, stop trusting the world or thinking they're going to give you passage to God's holy and sacred presence because they are not. They're going to do everything they can do to distract you from a life with God. Start trusting in God, and now we see that lesson taught a second time. I want to end just with a passage from Hosea, because Steph and I are working our way through Hosea right now. And this was so amazing, this idea of just go to the Lord and trust him to get you into the Holy Land. And this is a prayer in the, from the prophet Hosea, chapter 6, right at the top of the chapter. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, not guess, not hope, not be flippant about it. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established, is as established as the morning. And he will come to us like the rain like the latter and former rain to the earth. We don't have to strike the rock. We just have to ask for the water and give our lives over to the rock of ages that was already stricken once for us. And we don't have to have it stricken a second time. So the image still remains, even though Moses screwed it up. We just can pick on Moses for all of eternity in heaven for that. If you want something to rib Moses about, we can say that he didn't screw it up that bad. We were still able to figure it out. So with that, say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we love you. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that you bless and anoint their life. Help them to go forward in peace and in grace. Help them to love one another. Lord, may we cast off our contention and our strife. Uh, Moses yelled at people and called them rebels. Lord, help us to never do that. Each soul on this earth is one you made and is precious to you and you have a plan for them. So Lord, I pray that you bless our hearts. Teach us your way. Help us to move when you move and to stay when you stay. There's no other path to heaven. Uh, your way is the narrow and the straight path, and it's so simple and easy. Um, but everything in our heart wants to contend against it, to fight it, 
to pick our own path, to decide what we think God should be. Um, but Lord, we know that you are God. You are eternal. You've been here since the beginning and you'll be here through the end. So Lord, help us to cry out to you when we're thirsty um, and call out to you, Lord, when we have need uh, and know that you will bear those burdens and that you can handle those things. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ that was stricken once and evermore pours forth living water whenever we ask. Uh, and Lord, we just appreciate that. We love the blessing you give our lives. Lord, we love the fellowship that you've given us. Um, and Lord, we just pray you continue to bear fruit in that. I pray that next week when we meet, we will see your action in the lives of the people in this room and that we'll be able to share those stories. So Lord, I pray that you will move and you will act amongst this group of people and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.